Well, good morning again, friends. I am glad you're here. But I have a question for you. Why are you here? Why are you here? Yeah, you say, I'm here to worship God. Why? Why are you here to worship God? I think if you were to give that some serious consideration, you would dig down to some of the motivations and the attitudes and deep beliefs of your heart. And it would be good for all of us to do that. That's sort of what our sermon text does today. In our sermon text this morning, God speaks to us about true worship and false worship. So in other words, within his people Israel, there were true worshipers and false worshipers. Within the four walls of this church building this morning, there are likely true worshipers and likely false worshipers. Throughout the prophecy of Isaiah, now for 66 chapters, God has been dealing with the primary problem of false worship among his people, Israel. So we've learned that God's people have a merely external religion, a religion that performs all the kinds of cultic rituals that God has prescribed in his law, but they have no heart for God. And they, even though they perform these religious rituals, they don't obey God's word. It's as if they see God as a source of blessing. And so they go to the temple, they offer their prayers, they bring him sacrifices, they observe all of the holy holidays in order to get blessings from that God. As if God were the celestial slot machine. That if I pay my dues and pull the lever of prayer, I can get whatever I'm hoping for. But the reality is, in their false worship, their worship is disconnected from their heart. And it's divorced from obedience to God's word. Well, in chapter 65, the one that we dealt with last week, God declared, behold, I am going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and in it is going to be only true worship. And the new heavens and the new earth are going to be for the joy of my people. And now in Isaiah chapter 66, God explains who his true people are. And as he describes his true people, at the heart of the matter is true and false worship. 
Let me see if I can summarize the main point of our sermon text this morning. It's a declaration and an exhortation, both. God's making a declaration, he's making a statement, and then he's exhorting his people. So the main point of this paragraph is the declaration. God says, in the end, I'm going to restore in my creation true worship. And I'm going to rid my creation of false worship. And then the exhortation. Until that time, true worshipers, don't let the false worshipers shame you into unbelief. Very interesting. Take your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah chapter 66. Our sermon text is verse 1 through 6 this morning. Isaiah 66, 1 through 6. And here's my prayer. As we study this text this morning, my prayer is that God will do whatever it takes to make each one of us true worshipers. Are you willing to pray that prayer along with me? Because I'm praying that prayer about you. God, do whatever it takes. That is a no boundaries, no limits kind of prayer. Are you sure we're willing to pray that? God, do whatever it takes to make me a true worshiper. Go there, friend. For all of us, it will be worth it. And you'll see why. Isaiah 66, 1 through 6, if you're using the blue Bibles, uh, pardon me, the blue Bibles, I looked down, saw the color of the rug. The black Bibles on the blue rug. If you're using one of those, it's on page uh, 625. Let's read Isaiah 66, 1 through 6. This is the word of God, and it begins that way. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What's the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abomination. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did 
what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. That'll end God's, the reading of God's word for this morning and may he continue to speak to our hearts so that he will do whatever is necessary to make us true worshipers. I see in this text two things tied together, one flowing out of the other. First is a declaration, and then after God declares this truth about true and false worship, he speaks to the true worshipers and he exhorts them, encourages them. So first of all, let's look at the declaration, which is in verse 1 through 4. The declaration where God says, in the end, we're at the end of Isaiah, and he is talking about the end of all time. God says, I will restore in my creation true worship, and I'm going to rid it of all false worship. And you'll notice that he's not just talking in general, like true worship and false worship, but he's talking about worshipers. God's very personal here. So God begins this section by declaring his godness. And we understand why, because throughout the book of Isaiah so far, we get this sense of the false worship of God's people, where they kind of come with pretense, saying, well, we're Israelites, so we're safe. Just like many in our day might think, well, I grew up in a Christian home, so I'm safe. I'm a member of the church, so I'm... In verse 1, God says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things, all of heaven, all of earth, my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. The Lord begins by declaring his godness. He says, the universe is my dwelling place, and I don't need anything from you. He uses two objects to describe his sovereignty over the universe. He uses a throne and a footstool. God says, my throne are the heavens. So the heavens being Planets, stars, galaxies. God says, I sit on galaxies as if it's my throne. And I prop my feet up on the earth. And you all think you're so important, the center of the universe. And I, I'm so immense, so big, so God. That galaxies are my throne. The earth is my footstool. And by virtue of the fact that God's authority to govern his kingdom comes from the fact that he created everything. He alone has the authority and the power over not only everything, but every 
one, and that includes me and you, friend. So for us to think that we have built a house for God, like we're going to contain God in this house, we're going to use God as the celestial slot machine to bless our lives so that we can prosper and have health, wealth, and wisdom, is a ridiculous assumption. The temple is nothing by itself. God doesn't need a place to live or a place to rest. Even though he designed it, even though he sanctioned it, even though he put his name on it, God says, it's nothing without my presence. The rituals, the sacrifices, the offerings, the holy days, they're nothing in and of themselves. God doesn't need food and grain, lambs and oxes. We're not doing God a favor by bringing sacrifices to the temple. We don't do that anymore, but Israel isn't doing God a favor. Listen, when you put your offering to the Lord in that money box back there, you're not doing God a favor by putting it in there. And if, and if you put your money in, hoping that you'll get more money out, then we can see we're not really worshiping and serving God, are we? That's a self-loving religion. In Psalm 50, it's almost comical. Psalm 50, if you want to look at it, feel free to turn there. But, but God speaks about this whole concept of, of what he needs and what he doesn't need and how false religion kind of enters the picture and our attitudes about how we come to God sort of enter in. In Psalm 50, the mighty one, God the Lord, and just, just notice how, you know, like, who else can we say that about? The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, that's Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. And he says in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Look at verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Ritual for the sake of ritual, religion for the sake of religion, a temple for the sake of temple. They're all worthless. So what is God looking for? What is the focus of God's attention? If it's not the temple and the sacrifices, what is the focus of God's attention in Israel and in this room today. Verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. 
He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Commentator Burke says, One object in creation amid suns and stars secures the gaze of the great creator. It is the one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at his word. And with this, God defines true worshipers. This is true worship. Not bringing your money, your bulls, your goats, not observing all the holy days, not coming to church or the temple, depending on what century you're in. What garners the gaze, the favor, the blessing of God is not the merely external going through the checkbox religion to get what I want, but it is the heart of the one man, woman, boy, girl who is three things, humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at God's word. To be humble, the word means to be afflicted. To crouch low. It is to be poor. To be needy. So this one who is humble has a proper view of God's godness and our smallness. And we approach God with that attitude, with that perspective. We come to God not out of what we're going to give him or do for him, but we come to God out of our desperate need. We come with open hands, depending on God. The one who is contrite in spirit. To be contrite is also used to be crippled. Same word, just whether talking about physical or spiritual. This one is not crippled in physical body, but he is crippled spiritually, which speaks of the fact that he has been struck or stricken or crushed. Contrite in spirit is crushed over our sin. We come to God recognizing his holiness and our sinfulness. So we come seeing our need crushed over our sin. And then it's the same one who trembles at my word. Trembling is a sensitivity or fear. And it's a fear of God and his word. John Calvin said, so far as it relates to, quote, trembling, it might be thought strange at first sight. But I reply, there are two kinds of trembling. One by which they are terrified who hate and flee from God. And another which affects the heart and promotes the obedience of those who reverence and fear God. Do you fear God? Well, we would know, wouldn't we? Whether we fear God or not, because do we tremble at his word? In other words, are we submissive to what the authority of the universe tells us to do? 
are we submissive? True worshipers are defined as humble, contrite, and submissive. And this is not the only place in the scripture. In fact, there are more than you would want me to quote. Isaiah 57. If you'll remember, this is a chiasm where it goes up one side and down the other from about chapter 56 through 66. And earlier in 57, God emphasized humility. And now on the way out, he's emphasizing humility again. Why? Because it's the heart of the issue. And in Isaiah chapter 57, on the front end, here's what God says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And we all know that about God, don't we? That's not the gospel. Here's the rest of the gospel, according to Isaiah. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Because that's what humble contrition and trembling at God's word knows we need, we need revival, we need life out of the death of our sin and self-centeredness. Do you know that about you? Is that how you came to church today? God defines true worshipers as humility, contrition, and submission. In Psalm 51, he says, this is David praying, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What are you talking about? Wasn't it God who said you're supposed to bring me burnt offerings and you're supposed to bring me sacrifices? Ultimately, it's not the ritual and the external act, but it's the heart behind the sacrifice, the heart behind the offering. And so David says, You don't delight in sacrifice. I'd bring it. You won't be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. That's what garners the gaze of Almighty God. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 138.6 For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly. But the haughty, He knows from afar. Friends, at the heart of true worship is not merely acknowledging that God is God and I am a creator, a creation. It's not merely acknowledging that God is holy and I am a sinner. At the heart of true worship is submission to him as the authority over your life and depending on him to revive your dead sinful soul. In the end, God will restore his creation to true worship. 
and he will rid his creation of false worship. And so you saw that very stark contrast begin at verse 3, didn't you? Right after this beautiful statement about the one to whom God will look, the one that God will bless, favor, the one who garners his regard or his, his gaze. Then God says, he who slaughters an ox, verse 3, it's like a person who kills a man. Whoa, 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 hold up. What we've gotten into here is the contrast from true worship. Now we're looking at false worshipers. So verse 3 through 4 is the contrast. It's God defining false worshipers. They are those who slaughter oxes, sacrifice lambs, present grain offerings, makes memorial offerings. They do all the right things. Listen, in Israel, they were not missing church on Sunday, right? Of course, it was Saturday back then, but they were not missing the high holy day. They were there. But what was it? In God's estimation, when they, look there in verse 3, when they slaughtered an ox, it was just like murder. False worship in God's estimation, is nothing but murder, cruelty to animals, desecration and an abomination of the holy place, giving credit to idols for help. That's chapter 3. I mean, verse 3. In Malachi, speaking to the same kinds of people at the same time in history, Malachi Uh, gives this prophecy from God. God says this about their false worship. And they were, they were doing all the right things, sacrificing, bringing offerings and idols. God says this about it. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the door. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Wow. See, when we do worship our way, for our prosperity, it's offensive to God. Look what he says at the end of verse 3 and into verse 4. They, so he describes these people who bring the sacrifices and offerings these have chosen their own ways. So they, they're not going my way. They don't tremble at my word and live according to my ways. What have they done? They're doing religion their way. Do you see that at the end of verse 3? Look at it. Let your eyes fall on it. Because, friends, this is God's opinion of every form of religion except for that which conforms to his word. Every sincere heartfelt kind of religion that does not conform to God's word is us doing our own thing. They're not out killing men, breaking dogs' necks, drinking pig's blood. They're doing 
external religious things with the wrong attitude and the wrong heart, divorced from obedience and trembling at God's word. And God says of them in 3b, they choose their own ways. 3c, their soul delights in their abominations. When I called, they refused my call. When I spoke, they didn't listen. Look at the end of verse 4. But they do what is evil in God's sight. And they chose that which in which I did not delight. This is the opposite of humility, contrition, and submission. Just think about it. Instead of humility, they're arrogant. It's our way. Instead of contrition being broken over sin, they delight in their abominations. They don't even see it as sin. And instead of submission, they refuse God's word, God's call, speaking to them. And so God pronounces judgment on false worship. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they didn't listen, but they did what was evil and they chose that which I didn't like. Verse 4, I also will choose. Notice that they made their choice. At the end of verse 3, these have chosen their own ways. Now God makes his choice. And his choice over those who choose their own way is to choose judgment for them. Wow. What what kind of judgment? God says, I also will choose harsh treatment for them. And I think that that harsh treatment goes back to the way their religiosity looks in his eyes. It looks like killing and breaking dogs' necks and doing all kinds of things. And he chooses harsh treatment back on them. But the one that caused my spine to just shiver was there in verse 4 when he says, I also will bring their fears upon them. Wow. And think about your fears. If judgment from God is bringing your fears upon you, they didn't fear God. So God will bring their fears upon them. What fears? Fear of failure? Fear of separation? Fear of death? I think the point here is that worshiping in God's temple with God's rituals, divorced from trembling at God's word, is offensive to God and will result in terrible, unspeakable judgment. God says, in the end, I'm going to restore true worship to my creation and I'm going to rid my creation of all false worship. That means that the only ones in God's new creation are true worshipers and the ones excluded from God's new heavens and new earth are all false Worshippers. And God doesn't end there. After that declaration, God gives an exhortation, verse 5. 
he speaks to the true worshipers about the false worshipers. Because at that time, 700 BC, Israel, Jerusalem, Judah, they all lived there together. Went to the same temple, offered the same kinds of sacrifices, but two completely different kinds of people. Why? Because they had two completely different kinds of heart. One marked by humility, the other by arrogance. One marked by contrition, the other marked by delighting in their sin. One marked by trembling at God's word, the other marked by ignoring God's word. Friends, isn't that how it is with us today, 2022? Is there not just within our country, our city, but even within the church of Jesus Christ, two kinds of people? God speaks to the true worshipers about the false worshipers. And listen, it's because God knows the pressure that we feel from the false worshipers around us. Do we not feel the pressure of the culture acting like we're absolute idiots for believing this way? Thinking that we're intolerant, old-fashioned, out of touch? You're just foolish to believe what you believe. God knows about that pressure. So here at the end, verse 5 and 6, God looks directly at his true worshipers there and then and us. And he says this, until the day, until the day of the new heavens and the new earth, until that day, true worshipers, don't you dare let the false worshipers shame you into unbelief. You hang in there. Stick with it. Persevere in the faith. Read verse 5 and 6 with that backdrop. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who will be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. God speaks to the true worshipers about the false worshipers who he calls your brothers. That means they're in the same nation, came from the same set of parents. Go all the way back to Adam, but only by biology, not by faith. But he also at the end calls them his enemies. Why? Because they have chosen their own way. Friends, when we reject the sovereign godness of God and choose our own way, we make ourselves God's enemies. And we deserve whatever harsh treatment and fears God would bring upon us. That's the bold statement of the Bible here this morning. But God gives that to his people, his church in 2022. And he says, I know you feel the pressure. Look what it says there in verse 5. Your brothers hate you. 
So those who choose their own way to worship, they hate those who tremble at God's word. Why? Because of guilt and shame. Because in you, they see the light of God's truth that exposes the darkness in their heart. And they hate the light. Ultimately, they're not okay with Jesus. They hate Jesus in the end because they choose against him. So the false worshipers, what do they do? They cast you out in the name of religion. The false worshipers reject you, ridicule you, ostracize the true worshipers. They pressure them to conform to their ways and stop being so pious or or stringent. Does this sound familiar? Do you experience this in your family or in your workplace or in your neighborhood? Do Do you experience this at school? The temptation for the true worshipers is to give in to the fear of man. In that moment to fear man more than I fear God and give in to the pressure. Compromise and obey them rather than obeying God. And so God gives this beautiful exhortation. Your brothers might try to shame you now, but they will be brought to shame in the end. Now that's hard to believe when he's so powerful, she's so beautiful, they seem so right, and the majority's on their side. Friends, the God of the Bible is true. The gospel of Jesus is true. Stay by the stuff. Don't turn away out of the fear of man because in the end, every other opinion will be brought to absolute nothingness. They will be brought to shame. Their riches, their talent, their education, their success will not matter in the end. Only their heart attitude before God. God says, because they don't tremble at God's word, they will tremble before God's wrath. Verse 6, there's going to be a sound. It's the voice of God rendering judgment. It's going to explode like a sonic boom from his temple and reverberate through his city. The message of Isaiah 66, 1 through 6 is a declaration. God is going to restore his creation to true worship and he is going to rid his creation of all false worship. He'll look to bless those who are humble, contrite, submissive, trembling at his word. But he will choose judgment for those who choose their own way in arrogance, in delighting in their own way, and refusing God's call. The exhortation, until then, 
true worshipers, don't let false worshipers shame you into unbelief. That's Isaiah 66, 1 through 6. The fulfillment of that, the fulfillment of Isaiah 66 is not in our ability to be humble, be contrite, and be submissive. We can't. I don't have any hope to be humble. I am arrogant to the core. I don't have any hope to work up enough sorrow for the magnitude of my sin that would actually matter to God. And even if I did tremble at God's word, as soon as I get away from it, I'm going to fear man instead of God, and I'm going to probably disobey and be unfaithful to God's word. The fulfillment of Isaiah 66 is not in our ability. We're self-loving idolaters through and through. We must be rescued. The fulfillment of Isaiah 66 is that God sent his divine warrior, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from from our self-loving false worship. And Jesus fulfilled this. Humility, contrition, and submission, Jesus humbled himself. He became a man. That's humility when he was God. He bore the ridicule of the false worshipers of Israel. They were Israel's elite. He sacrificed himself in humility as the Lamb of God to make atonement for arrogant sinners like me. Jesus had no need for contrition. But Jesus' heart was broken over our sinful condition. And so Jesus became sin for us. He took our sin onto himself just like the Lamb of God, just like the scapegoat. He became sin for us. He took our rap sheet of offenses against God, nailed it to the cross. He buried it in the tomb, and then he rose from the dead after paying the penalty for our sin so that he would be able to give us forgiveness of sin and eternal life forever. Jesus made a covenant with us until death do we part, and Jesus will never die, and neither will we because of him. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus became sin for us, and Jesus was submissive. Jesus is the ultimate true Israel of God. He became submissive to his Father's word. Jesus trembled at his Father's word. Read the Gospel of John sometime and just look for all of the statements about Father. I once preached a message called Father Focused. Jesus is entirely Father focused in the Gospel of John. He says things like this that exalts his submissiveness. I do nothing of myself, but only what the Father tells me to do. I do only the things that please my Father. It's not his will, it's God's will. 
I do my father's will, not my own. I keep my father's commandments. I only speak what my father tells me to speak. Friends, that's trembling at God's word. That's the Christ life. Humility, contrition, submission of Jesus is what rescues us because he fulfilled this so that all who are in Christ can also receive the gaze and the favor and the blessing of God in Christ's kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. The gospel of Isaiah 66 is that through the miracle of God's word, the gospel, God gives us new hearts, no longer self-loving idolaters. God makes us new people, true worshipers. That's a miracle. Jesus described it as great as the miracle of, of birth. Like you're a whole different person. And God did this. So God, the gospel shows us God's godness and our need. And it brings us to humility. The gospel exposes our sin. And through the gospel, we're crushed to contrition. The gospel declares God's call. What's the call of the gospel, friend? Repent and believe. Will you respond? This was the testimony of the church at Thessalonica. And I close with this because it's beautiful. Speaking of the gospel that worked in them, nothing they did. It's not in their ability, but it's in God's ability to make whole new people. That's the gospel. Here's what Paul said about this church. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And in chapter 2, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received his word, Did they reject it? Did they ignore it? Or did they tremble at it? Paul says, when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And you received it so much. Get this. That Paul says you were willing to suffer the same things from your own countrymen as they did to the Jews, to Jesus, to the prophets. They drove us out. They hindered us from preaching the gospel so that they would be saved. And so it is that the wrath of God is coming on them. You see how the gospel took them from self-loving idolaters all the way through to persevering saints, even in the face of suffering. And the gospel will do that for you too. Not based on your ability to be humble, contrite, and submissive, but based on your being in Jesus who is. Praise God. 
for rescuing us from false worship. And I pray, I pray that God will do whatever it takes to make every single person in this room a true worshiper. Let's pray together. God, that's my prayer. I pray that you, a miracle-working, gracious, merciful, long-suffering God of love, I pray that you would work in every single person who hears this, your word. You would do whatever it takes to make every single one of us true worshipers so that we experience the glory of your gaze instead of the terror of your judgment. I pray that in the name of the divine warrior, the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.